We acknowledge that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We respect and pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, it is breakfast time. If you're an early riser, not everybody has breakfast at 7 in the morning. Do you have breakfast at 7 in the morning, Judith? Sometimes. It Um, it depends. It depends. Very rare for me unless I have to be up and out somewhere. But if you are having breakfast now, then good morning (laughs) to you. And if you're uh, off to work now, then good morning to you. And if you're lying in bed, then uh, stay a little bit longer. It's actually quite mild outside this morning. It is. I was really surprised when I walked out. I thought, oh, I put on something warm. I'm going to be too hot when we leave this studio. Very odd. Um, and it's only going to be a top of 22 today and mostly cloudy. And then back into the rain for autumn with uh, 25 uh, rain and windy for Thursday, 18 and a little rain on Friday, and then Saturday, 20 degrees and partly cloudy. So at least we're getting a little bit more more rain. Um, I know we my... are, and it's May. It's May the 2nd. Oh, it's May. It is. Yeah. I just I remind you. <laughs> yeah, case, no, in case you miss, in case you miss May Day. I, uh, yeah, well, there was a lot going on yesterday, of course. There yes, were, um, did you get along to any events yesterday? I didn't, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, it was a big day. Why isn't it a public holiday? I don't know. Shouldn't, shouldn't that be a... I think so. It seems like one I that would make so. a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, um, I, I forgot there were a lot of things on because I was um, very busy at work. But yes. isn't that, shouldn't that be the whole point that I get to have that, that day <laughs> Anyway, um, um, I was also going to say with the with the lack of rain that we've had uh, lately, my my parents at uh, at least they're up in the hills. They've got tank water, and for the first time since I was um, a little kid in primary school, um, they ran out of water, oh. uh, which yeah has oh. been a long time. So very hopeful for all those that are on tank water, and 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 for the rest of us that are reliant on the uh, on the dams across Melbourne, um, that uh, there is a bit more rain. But I saw uh, a news report in the Guardian yesterday that. Uh, uh, the the logging that's going on is starting to uh, have some effects on the uh, on the mountain ashes, um, oh, which is where is, our water catchments so, yeah, are. And, and they're so beautiful. And yeah, oh well, yeah. And with our um, water catchments um, at threat, uh, the, the the tone of the article was basically like, when are we going to realise that we can get a little bit of money logging trees, um, but that if we have to completely replace the uh the water supply that we currently get you know yes from these areas um that's 10 times 100 times more valuable than a couple of logs it's life really isn't it water it's, it's our life we can't manage without it so i mean that's something that i'd i'd love to follow up on in a future show I, but I we think um, definitely i think the whole issue of water is, is a huge issue internationally so yeah mm. definitely something to look at but this morning on the show we have um a lot of uh, a lot of other things um that we'll be talking about um much later in the program dr well, dennis Muller, yes and he's going to be talking about the debate about australian content on television and uh, and the way we monitor that and um, and Tim Jones is going to come in for his monthly segment. Tim's a cultural historian, and he keeps an eye on what's going on generally, so he'll update us on that. 
There's something on digital privacy, I think, that, yes, that we'll be having. Dr. Vanen- uh, Vanessa Teague from Melbourne Uni. Yeah, and, um, and we've decided, I don't know if you saw the, um, or the, the Four Corners report. Sorry, I don't know if you saw the Four Corners report um, on Monday with Jane Martin, uh, who's uh, from the Obesity Policy Coalition. She, I mean, the report itself is definitely worth seeing. It's, it's on both obesity and it's also um, on the politics of it, you know, like who's influencing who in Canberra and why we don't have stronger policies around, you know, preventing obesity and things like, you know, the sugar in drinks, fizzy drinks and uh, and the fast food industry. So... Last October, I don't know if you remember, Nick, whether you're on the show that day, but we did interview Jane Martin, and uh, she was um, she spoke on the Four Corners report. So we're going to just replay that. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I do. October's my birthday, so there might have been. Oh, one. you might have been. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I think I do. I think I was here for that one. Yeah. I think you were too, actually, because I can remember you commenting on. So that will be happening around <laughs> seven thirty. We'll be speaking also about bandicoots in the suburbs. With yeah, I thought, I thought <laughs> bandicoots were something that you expect if you, you know, drive six hours out of Melbourne at the very least, but no, in the suburbs. In the suburbs. So you and Richie from Deakin, Dr. Ewan, or associate professor, I think, from Deakin is going to talk to us about that. But right now on the phone, we have Alice Payne from QUT, and uh, she's going to talk to us a bit about ethical shopping for a winter coat. And, and uh, as you said, Nick, it's very balmy here this morning. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought... You, but but it, I think it's going to be 16 on Monday. It will on. cool down, yeah. It will. So, <laughs> so winter, winter coats are kind of on our mind. Alice, are you there? Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks, and thanks so much for, for coming on, because I know you've got, to, you've got to get off to work soon, so really appreciate your time this morning. No worries. Yeah, so I'm just thinking, you're, we're speaking to you in Queensland. Do you need a winter coat in Queensland? Well, Queensland, we're very lucky because our winter is about 19 degrees, which is very pleasant. Um, however, I do spend a lot of time in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, and you need a winter coat there, particularly as a Queenslander. Yeah. You definitely do. There's even snow, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, Alice, you're a senior lecturer in design practice and management at Queensland University of Technology. And uh, you've, in, in a recent article in the, in, the, in the Guardian, actually in the conversation, part of a series I got on uh, sustainable shopping, you've identified a number of things to be aware of to limit your impact on the environment if you are about to go out and buy a buy winter coat and also to, you know, to promote ethical practices. So early in the article, you talk about the popularity of the puffer jacket. Why are they so popular? Well, I think in many respects, it's a it's a functional, um, it's a highly functional item. The uh, the down inside them is naturally lofty, and it you know retains the warmth incredibly well. I think. Um, uh, my background is in fashion, and I think that that also they signal as a as a wearer of them, they they signal certain fashion things that you're an active outdoors person, that you're going to be trekking somewhere. I think that the people have those associations with them too. But I think largely it's it's very much a functional um, reason they're so popular. Yes, I mean I was thinking we ride bikes. I, I say this having just got a bike, acquired a bike, but anyway, in Melbourne, and I guess the lightness um, would would appeal. Mm. But there's also a dark side to the puffer jacket, as you point out in your article. Yes, absolutely. So well, there's a number of issues, but I think the one that most people would be well aware of, or want to be most interested in perhaps is the, uh, the the down and the feathers that uh, are in the puffer jackets. There's been about five years ago there was a, a, a real scandal I guess when it emerged that 
so many of these um, down and feathers that are plucked from water birds are actually live plucked. So uh, we would think that down and feathers would be a byproduct of the meat industry, and largely they are. But uh, there is been many reports that have come from animal welfare groups of these animals actually being stripped of their down and feathers while alive. Ouch. Which, um, I mean, it's just Yeah, it's torturous for them. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, so that's, that's been, I think, a particularly... Uh, challenging issue from a supply chain perspective to address for many companies. Yeah, so so if you are feeling, I mean, for the reasons you say, you know, it is a, a light garment, it's warm, that, that you really do want one, um, well, how can you ensure that the down is ethically sourced? Is there any way of doing that? Yeah, there's a few ways. Um, and I think that there's no perfect way, to be frank. Uh, there are a couple of... Uh, certification bodies like Responsible Down Standard and Global Traceable Down Standard, and they have third-party audits, audits that go into uh, manufacturing plants, that go into meat plants, that go into um, the, the, the places of processing and actually, you know, to, to check that these birds aren't live-plucked or force-fed for that matter. So that's one angle um, if you go with the down. But there are other options for different battings inside apart from feathers, um, there's so, so what other options are there? Yeah, so many. If you go into um, into many chain stores, you'll see that there'll be polyester fillings. Polyester is a non-renewable resource, so you know, and contributes to climate change, being a from a fossil fuels. Um, but there are recycled PET options from plastic bottles and so on. So there, recycled PET is often seen as a better alternative to virgin polyester. Uh, so that, that's one option. It's fluffy, it's light, not quite as light as down, not quite as insulative, but, you know, it's another option. Uh, there are a couple of natural fillings that are options too. Uh, the Australian Wool Innovation developed Merino Loft, which is these kinds of uh, merino wool batting that is also very light and, and very warm. And merino wool has many naturally insulating properties like down. Yes. That's another option. Um, and there's also uh, some companies are gathering recycled down from old um, duvets and um, pillows. Oh, what and a good idea. What a yeah. Good idea. So that's the best of both worlds, perhaps. Yes, it is. And I guess the other thing, uh, you know, that you talk about and that we need to think about is, is the manufacturing processes themselves. Yes. So that's an issue that cuts through all garment production. There's over 60 million garment workers worldwide, many of whom are the most vulnerable workers in the world. And, you know, I think it, we're coming off the back of Fashion Revolution Week last week, which um, your listeners might be aware of, yes. uh, which was really uh, reflecting on the impact of events, Rana Plaza event where um, the factory collapsed and over 1,100 garment workers were killed. And... The, I guess for, for decades there's been systemic um, worker health and safety issues throughout the garment industry. And although uh, the traceability, although auditing and codes of conduct are put in place, there remains, it remains a really intractable issue. And I guess the opaque supply chains of fashion um, companies mean that, yeah, everyone, um, it, it remains a huge challenge. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's hard to get to... To the bottom of that, but um, it's certainly something to to be aware of, and I'm sure people, you know, listen to 3CR would be. It's something that would be in their minds. Yes, well, if people are interested, the um, Baptist World Aid report came out last week. I think uh, that's a report that comes out every year 
from uh, an Australian NGO, and they actually ask many, many Australian companies to provide, uh, I guess, traceability information. How far back? Can they, can they ensure the cotton, for example, wasn't picked by child labour? Can they ensure that, you know, the garments were paid a living wage? Uh, the, I beg your pardon. The workers were paid a living wage for their garments. Yes. Um, can they ensure that the, the health and safety practices are followed? And um, the, the very... The very scrutiny that has been on over the past five years on companies, we've seen Australian companies really lift their game in that respect. In uh, terms what of what was the name of that report again, Alice? It's the Eth- Ethical Fashion Report. Ethical Fashion it's, Report. Yeah, and if we Google that, can we find it easily? That's right. It should be come up onto Baptist World Aid. The Austra- uh, Yes, Ethical Fashion Report. Other editions have been the Australian Fashion Report, I believe. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it came out only last week. But, there's, um, it, yes, it's been released for the last five years. Well, look, yeah. that would be something for us to look at, perhaps, uh, for another show. And uh, I noticed uh, in your article you say that the most environmentally friendly item is the one we already own. Yes. That, that's my own view. I think, well, I think it's founded in evidence too. But yeah, and Nick, I just uh, need to say, Nick is just pulling out his coat <laughs> the one with he the owns. holes in the elbows. And but I refuse to get a new one because it still works. It's just yes. I just get cold elbows sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you can patch them. You can look like a mad exactly. professor with your that's, elbow patches. Well, yeah, if you see this jumper, you'll see that a, a patch on it probably won't, make, people won't notice too much. <laughs> I know what it, I mean, it, it is something about a winter coat, though. If you've had one that has just kept you warm, it's, just, it's really hard in a way to, to give it up. But, but coats, coats do fall apart, so it, it gets to that point. And um, when you do talk, and I, lo- I loved it, actually, because we don't hear much about fibres, really, in our day-to-day chat. Uh, but you talked about fibres, and particularly about wool being a really good fiber. Mm, absolutely. Wool's, wool's incredible for many reasons, particularly for, for winter coats, but it can also be worn, you know, for beautiful lightweight um, uh, purposes as well. But yeah, wool has naturally insulating properties. It's naturally, um, you know, it, 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 it will retain the warmth. Uh, it is naturally antibacterial, so, you know, it, it's not going to be um, more likely to rot. It's naturally flame-resistant, of course, which is why it was often used in firefighting uh, right. gear in the past. Okay, I didn't know um, that. Yes. Yeah, so, no, wool, wool's quite a remarkable fibre, and that's actually structural to the nature of the fibre itself. Um, so that's partly why, um, it, you know, it has all these great qualities for winter coats. And... Um, yeah, I, I, wool's, a, wool's a wonderful um, option for a winter coat that will last, uh, and it's less likely to get the kinds of pilling that you might see on the cheaper acrylic imitations as well. Yes. Yeah, so well, in terms of longevity, it can work well. Yes, and, and therefore, you know, you do mention op shops and all those other good ways to, uh, yeah, to do our shopping. So I know That's right, yeah. <laughs> So I know you've got to, to get on your way to work, and uh, also, so e- extra thank you for coming on the show this morning, Dr. Alice Payne, and um, I'm taking on board your, your, one of your final comments in the article, my first stop when doing some sustainable shopping is my own wardrobe, so <laughs> I think that's, that's a great message message. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Judith. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye.
Well, yeah, it is about time to think for think about some new clothes. <laughs> well, <laughs> they slowly fall apart. But yeah, I I definitely it's almost my first and last stop on my own wardrobe. Um, I'm terrible at buying new clothes until I I was actually wearing a pair of pants yesterday, um, and uh, over the course of the day they've now got a giant hole in the crotch, and it's about at that point where you can't. You can't do it them. any longer. So sooner no. or later, we do have to to hit the op shops or yeah, some some other or or, or buy something new. Up soon, uh, we'll be talking digital privacy. We're going to be talking um, the uh, communications and and media in the in the modern age, uh, and also bandicoots in the suburbs. This is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky, plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy, and all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. 3CR Wednesday breakfast on the 2nd of May, uh, about 15 minutes past 7. And uh, we move from sustainable shopping to sustainable environments, or, or to be more specific, the Southern Brown Bandicoot. Our next guest, Ewan Ritchie, is an associate professor uh, in wildlife ecology and conservation at the Centre for Integrative Ecology at the School of Life and Environment Sciences at Deakin University. And uh, he joins us to tell us about uh, a study he's done, and one, also one of his PhD students, Sarah McLagan, in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs. So welcome to 3CR Breakfast, you and Richie. Good morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you also for making time. I know that you're busy. You'll be getting your children off. So, <laughs> so <laughs> they've had their breakfast, so yeah. everything's in order. <laughs> everything's in order. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, I was really interested to read your paper and, and stayed up half the night looking at videos of the Southern Brown Bandicoot <laughs> on, on the computer because <laughs> they are just gorgeous. But uh, and you acknowledge in the beginning of the paper that urbanisation is one of the biggest threats to biodiversity. So I'm wondering, you know, why you decided to do a study in, in a, well, a, I guess you're calling it a peri-urban area in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, well, I think, as you mentioned, urbanisation is a great threat to wildlife um, through the conversion or loss of their habitats as we build our houses and everything else that we need to live. That has a really big impact on all the species that live in those areas. Um, so we need to understand the impact of that and obviously do our best um, to reduce that impact. But I think it's also really important to realise that there is a large amount of wildlife, uh, plants and animals, that live 
in our cities or could live in our cities if we manage them differently. And many people are unaware of uh, remarkable animals that are sort of basically under our feet, so to speak, um, in our suburbs or sort of outer areas, so peri-urban areas being those areas on the fringes of cities between rural and, and more urban areas. And that includes bandicoots. Yes. And and so we were trying to understand, you know, how they managed to make a living in these areas. Yes, I, I noticed that. And you do also in your paper early on talk about novel ecosystems. So what are they and, and why do we need to pay attention to them? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, novel ecosystems are essentially ecosystems that have been modified by us that now have different uh, groups of species that they would have had before or different environmental conditions. So, you know, rather than the same sort of plants or, you know, rocks or whatever it might have been there before, there might be different structures and different environmental conditions um, compared to previous. And really, when you think about the impact of humans around the world, it's, it's very hard to find any systems that you might not be able to find as novel to some degree. Yes, but I think the true. more important the more important thing really is to understand how animals, uh, plants and animals, can respond to those and, and where they can essentially still make a living. And if there's things we can do to help that, then obviously that's going to have a, a great conservation outcome. Yes. So tell us how you conducted the study. Yeah, so essentially um, the work, and most of the credit definitely goes to Sarah McLagan, the PhD student, who did all, all the vast majority of the hard work. But essentially what we did uh, was compare um, two sites, two remnant sites, two large areas, so the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and Quail Island. Um, and these are southeast of Melbourne, about 70, 80 k southeast of Melbourne. And five other sites around the Coorirup and Bunyip areas which are these more novel areas, um, and these sort of include areas that are sort of roadsides, railway lines, or uh, sort of along drainage uh, ditches. So that area, the Kurirup uh, wetlands, um, is used a lot for agriculture yes, and um, uh, for vegetables and so forth. And there's a lot of water that runs through that area and there's big drainage lines. But along those lines, there's uh, remnant vegetation, about 5% of what was left of that total Kurirup swamp before it was drained and heavily modified. Um, and in that vegetation, there's things like blackberry as well, so introduced species. And this is where it appears these bandicoots are doing quite well. So we compared these novel sites, those two remnant, more natural inverted commas areas, to see how the bandicoots were doing, because theory would predict that bandicoots should do better in less disturbed, more natural areas, and we wanted to test that idea out. So we looked at a whole range of things, including you know, whether they were breeding, how many bandicoots were there, whether they were staying put, so whether they're resident or not, um, and the condition of females as well. So, you know, how much do they weigh and were they showing signs of being healthy and so forth. And did you have to uh, sort of capture them and, and examine them to do that? Yeah, that's right. So we use cage traps where we, you know, um, open up a sort of metal cage and you can put in um, bait that the bandicoot goes in um, and then the bandicoot's trapped and it's not harmed at all. So we um, just measure them, uh, weigh them, check their check their pouches to see whether they've got young or not, um, and then they're um, released. So uh, we, we take all those measurements to see how they're going and to record population information, and they're released. So a lot of this might sound very um, counterintuitive for, for those that, that sort of think when we urbanise spaces that it, it kind of cuts out nature, but um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the life forms that go on and survive, not just survive, but thrive in our environments. I've noticed that um, a few of the nature documentaries, even um, David Attenborough um, in the latest uh, Earth series, um, there was a whole, 
whole episode on cities and on the fantastic wildlife and and um, and, and plant life that that thrives uh, in cities. I, and um, maybe it's something that just hasn't hasn't come enough to to our attention. Do you think it is something that um, we need to focus on more so that we can then uh, start to design with that in mind, not design just for our own needs, but realize that hey, there are things that are coming and living alongside us, and if we encourage and support that, maybe we can have a better relationship overall. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to realize that in these cities there are, there are winners and losers. So there are species that are you know can do well and, and are doing well, but we have also lost a lot of um, animals from our cities too. So Melbourne, as an example, would have had eastern quolls um, in the past, but doesn't anymore. Um, so we still have to be careful about not losing too much habitat. But as you say, there are large numbers of species that are living in our cities. Um, a study was done a while ago that showed actually around Australia there's about 380 threatened species that, are, that occur in urban areas. Um, and these include wonderful things like growling grass frogs, um, you know, species of cockatoo, um, orchids, uh, obviously southern brown bandicoot, so a whole range of species. And anything we can do to make those areas more, I guess, accessible or livable um, for those animals is fantastic. And there's a whole bunch of research that's been sort of, I guess, done to look at things like urban design. So can we make our buildings more green, you know, have sort of, you know, trees and so forth around them or as part of them built into them? Can we make our roads more friendly so we can have overpasses or underpasses for wildlife? That's There's a whole a, that range of things we could do. sounds terrific to be, you know, thinking about all of those things. And uh, and it's, it's kind of encouraging. I mean, obviously, as you say, we can't be complacent about the losses we've had, but... It's kind of good that there's some things we can do to nurture. I mean, I, I, reading your paper, I noticed that you were, excuse me, you were actually surprised. There were some surprises in the findings of your study. Yeah, well, I think as, as we, we pointed out and we've been discussing, I think it kind of questions this idea that, you know, all the animals and all the wildlife and so forth is in areas of wilderness and these cities are sort of devoid of any plants and animals or at least native ones. And that's certainly just not true. So, I think we sort of need to rethink that divide, which is very artificial, and, and do our very best to conserve uh, the plants and animals that are in these cities. And it's also worth bearing in mind, too, that humans often settle in the best areas of the environment, so where there's really good soils, where there's water and so forth, and that happens to be where biodiversity likes to be a lot of the time, too. And so it's not surprising that uh, many species can do quite well in these areas, and therefore we need to manage them better. Oh, well, look, I think, you know, I've really enjoyed your paper, really enjoyed looking at the southern brown bandicoots, and it's good to know that they are surviving. And I think in your paper you found actually some of the ones in the peri-urban environments or the novel ecosystems were doing be- actually doing better than the ones in the other areas. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the most surprising things. So not only are they surviving there, but in some areas they appear to be thriving. So... We found about 66 individuals in these um, novel areas and only about 26 individuals in those remnant areas um, <clears throat> as compared to sort of, you know, the trapping effort we put in the, in those areas. Um, the female body condition was the same between both areas, so it looks like they're, you know, managing to get enough food and stay healthy in those areas. All the females were very close to all the females. About 93% of females were breeding in those novel areas. Um, so it appears sort of from multiple measures that they're doing really, really well. Um, and we think um, in particular in those novel areas, it's probably for a couple of reasons, those drainage lines that I talked about before happen to be really fertile soil, which is probably really good for things like invertebrates, right. which bandicoots are running around, scaring around, trying to catch and eat. Um, also, what's interesting is that those environments have lots of weeds in them, things like blackberry. And now 
we often sort of look at things like BlackBerry and think, well, we have to remove that because it's an introduced species. But that BlackBerry might be really important to bandicoots because it provides cover and protection from things like feral cats and foxes. And it might also even provide a force, um, source of food, so lots of invertebrates and so forth around or underneath those blackberry bushes. So, again, challenges to rethink about how we look at weeds. And if we don't have areas of natural vegetation anymore, we have to be really careful about not just running in there and ripping out weeds before we can replant similar structure with native plants. And so, it, again, it shows us that the bandicoots aren't really that picky about where they live. They just need a few key elements like that cover Yeah, protection, yeah, from foxes and cats and, uh, yes. Well, thank you so much uh, for bringing, and, and to um, your PhD student as well, uh, for bringing all of this to our attention. And, um, I mean, what's next for you? And, uh, I I imagine uh, Sarah's busy writing up her findings, is she? (laughs) (laughs) Sarah is very busy writing up, um, yeah, her, her wonderful work. So, uh, look, it would be fantastic to do some more work on bandicoots, and I'm actually involved in another project that's looking at what bandicoots, uh, this case, um, eastern barred bandicoots are doing um, down on Churchill Island and Phillip Island in terms of what they're eating, but also their effect on the soil. So one of the other really fantastic things that bandicoots do is spend a lot of time digging, um, and those, those holes that they dig looking for food are actually really important for helping things like seed germination, uh, water infiltration, soil fertility. Um, each individual bandicoot can turn over you know, a few tons of soil every year. So, that's an incredible yeah, statistic. I mean. It is incredible. So they spend yeah. a huge amount of time digging, and it turns out that this process is really, really important for soil health and for vegetation. So yeah. um, there's so much more that we need to understand about these wonderful creatures. Yes. Um, so we'll certainly keep us busy for a long time. <laughs> will. Well, look, thank you so much, you and uh, Dr. You, well, you're such a professor, I think. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Dr. is fine. <laughs> <laughs> you and Richie, thanks so much. And uh, I should let you're you welcome. go now so you know, the children finish their breakfast and get off to school. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, very um, excited to hear that the bandicoots are thriving in the um, in the areas. I mean, this warms my heart a little bit because I love the pigeons and the and the rats and the mice and yeah. I, every, all the animals that everybody else hates because they think they're vermin. I'm like, hang on, these are the ones that have seen our environment and gone. I'm going to thrive here, yeah. and, and that's why we don't like them, because they actually thrive where we build things, and we're like, oh, no, we've got to keep Well, I mean, the other thing is to, that, that worried me a little bit is distinguishing them from, from mice, for example. Yeah, because well, a bandicoot, for, I mean, for those that haven't seen one, it, it does kind of look a bit um, ears, rat-like. And the, and the tail not as long. Well, I was thinking, yeah, right, mouse, yeah. Uh, it's certainly. a bit more, it's got a bit more of a um, sort of a kangaroo-type head, a yes. small, like, and, kangaroo-type head. And a bit head more and, elongated, I yeah. think, yeah, but... But, uh, you know, it's so funny, as I was looking at them last night, I, I used to walk, uh, there's a linear path that I lived near, and I lived in Adelaide, and uh, I used to walk along every morning, and I would see these creatures, and I loved it, doing exactly what uh, you and just described, you know, digging Scurrying in the soil, the side, and yeah. I assumed all this time that they were uh, mice, because they were small, and they didn't look like rats, they looked like mice, and, and especially watching their little hands, you know, well, hand probably not the right word, yeah, but digging paws, yeah. little paws, and, and the sensitivity, you know, and so I got really excited last night, thinking, oh, oh, maybe they were <laughs> bandicoots, but then, of course, bandicoots are night creatures, ah, right, so yeah. I realized, oh, damn. Well, there was a few other things that it could have been, yeah. isn't the um, antichinus, isn't, isn't that quite small and, and mouse rat-like, who knows, and... Uh, who knows, but um, I just enjoyed uh, the 
are. immensely. We, we have all sorts of animals that mm. people might not even realise they're looking at um, around the suburbs, around the outer suburbs and off into, you know, into the regional areas of Australia and, and sometimes you think, you know, at the glance of an mm. eye you think, oh, that's a rabbit or that's a, a, yes. a rat or a mouse. And I no, mean, this is where, you know, science education is so very important because children just love, you know, in fact, when I was looking on the web, I saw a little video that some children had put together about protecting bandicoots from a primary school. I don't know. I can't remember where. No, but they, you know, they got right into it. (laughs) And uh, so the more we know and understand, the better. We're going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Timothy Jones soon. He's our uh, cultural historian from La Trobe, um, and he joins us once a month. And this is uh, the time of month for Tim to turn up. Um, Also, Dr. Vanessa Teague on digital privacy and hearing from uh, Penny Hill, former SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy uh, president, about her trip to the UN right now, Amistad, with magnificence. Yet feeling steady, steady and strong. Great fucked up our souls, and we read our bones. So open, what a holes in us. So open, can you see it now? Leave our side when did indifference taint our mind? When did magnificence leave our side? When did indifference taint our mind? One by one, we come undone by the enemy within a sun. What's the enemy without? It's all flat out Now struck by the game We are hindered to aim For the light in us For Can you see it now? Where do we all collide? Can you see it now? Why do we all divide? Leave our side when did indifference take our mind? When did indifference leave our side? When did indifference take our mind? When did indifference leave our side? When did indifference take our mind? When did indifference leave our side? When did indifference take our mind? The race it seems to be now taking its toll on me now. A race it seems to be now. Taking its toll of me now A race it seems to be now Taking its toll of me now A race it seems to be now Taking its toll of me Can you see it now? 
Yeah. And a start with magnificence on 3CR breakfast on the 2nd of May, uh, 25 minutes to 8. And uh, I don't know if you saw the Four Corners program on Monday. On uh, It was about uh, Australia's obesity epidemic and exposed particularly the lobbying, lobbying power of big food. And, uh, yeah, very worrying in a way to, to hear some of those stories and, and to hear how it's affecting people who have problems there. So one of the people they spoke to on Four Corners was Jane Martin, the executive manager of obesity, of the Obesity Policy Coalition. We, we spoke with Jane last October about yes. many of the things that were new. Do you remember, Nick, uh, that we did? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so she, about many things that were raised in the Four Corners show. So we wanted to, to play that interview again and also to, you know, get people thinking about the issues. So here's Jane. Australia, like many other countries, has a really serious problem with overweight and obesity. We have 27% of children and 63% of adults overweight or obese. Obesity in women is growing in Australia faster than anywhere else in the world. And at the moment, our government has no strategy to prevent obesity. It's estimated that it costs the Australian budget around $3.5 billion every year. That's from the Grattan Institute. But if you take into account the indirect costs, though, the loss of work, quality of life, it's estimated to be around $12.8 billion. But there's also a big cost in people living with a disability because a lot of people who are overweight or obese they're not able to walk to the shops. They're, they find it difficult to just do everyday things. So people living with overweight and obesity are often living with a chronic disease as a result of that, which, which has big impacts on how they live. So looking at, at your report, I noticed that the very first priority is limiting advertising and marketing to children. Well, that's because we know that it's a really key influencer on children. So seeing advertising for unhealthy food, which children are surrounded by, impacts on what they eat, what they want to eat, and what they pester their parents for. And we know that there's a lot of marketing to children on television. They're being exposed to unhealthy food marketing through apps, on computers and on phones. There's a lot of marketing through Facebook and a lot of quite young children are um, on those kinds of platforms. There's a lot of incentives and prizes and freebies given through games online. So the digital space is very much saturated with unhealthy food marketing. The most popular websites for children are unhealthy food marketers and they're reaching our children where they are, which is online. Wednesday, book report two. Win a movie ticket? Cool! Oh no, bus is late again. Slurp is for only one dollar. I could get ten. Yes! Player, wait till I show Jake my Macca's voucher. I wish I had a phone. I could get that Hungry Jacks up too. Jake wants a stick, Jake. Marlo sponsored my cricket team, so I think it's pretty good to buy that stuff. Half price. Come on, they're half price. I wish I could be a Ninja Warrior. We're calling as a first step that children are protected on TV because children are still watching television in large numbers, particularly popular programs and the highest rating children's programs. There's no controls on the marketing in those kinds of shows like The Block, like The Voice. So popular children's programs are not, there's no restrictions and that's where marketers are. The block sponsored by McDonald's, for example, there's not just advertising in the ad breaks, but there's advertising all through the program. There's product placement and things like that. What does product placement mean? 
So what you see if you watch The Block, uh, which is um, a very popular home renovation sort of show, is that they have a McCafe as part of the program and the contestants go and have coffee in the mornings. Then it, they often show the contestants going to McDonald's and buying food from there and eating it. And so you're seeing the branding. So it becomes part of the program. And that's quite insidious for children because they can't determine what's part of the program and what's added in, which is why there's controls on product placement uh, in countries like the UK. Countries like the UK have already taken action on this? They have some controls around product placement, like tobacco companies, food and sugary drink companies. You know, they want to reach children because they capture them and then they become fans for life and they're important, very important part of the market around marketing it's self-regulation so the corporates are setting their own rules and then they're marking their own homework and it's not really good enough when we have such a big problem more than 33% of what children are eating, the energy in their diet is coming from unhealthy foods. So that's a serious issue. And when you say self-regulation, how does that work? How does that happen? They uh, oversee their own codes of practice uh, and they haven't been shown to have reduced the exposure of children to unhealthy food marketing. So they're ineffective and that's not just in Australia, that's been shown globally. The regulations are so poor that they do not stop the kinds of techniques that advertisers are using to target children. For example, toys with fast food meals are considered not as a premium, they're not an added extra, they're considered to be an integral part of the meal. On the face of it, it looks like the, the rules would stop that kind of thing, but in reality, the rules are ineffective. That's why you're calling for laws to govern this advertising. Yeah, we want this to be not overseen by industry, but hard letter regulation as recommended by the World Health Organization to really protect children in a meaningful way. The report talks about the mandatory implementation of the star rating system introduced just a few years ago. Can you tell me a bit more about it? This is a, a front of pack labeling system which is aims to determine the overall healthiness of the food by category. So if you're looking for a healthier breakfast cereal, you can go to the stars and find one that is uh, better for you compared to the other ones. There's a few problems with it. It's probably too generous around added sugar probably needs to be looked at and it, and it is under this new review but overall it's only useful if it's on all products and at the moment some companies like Coles and Woolworths are putting it on all their packaged foods but other companies are putting it on their, their higher rating products. So Do you mean they're more nutritional products? Yeah, the ones that score better under the scheme. They're putting the stars on and there's a lot of products without any stars. So I think the coverage is around 17% overall. 17, one seven. Yes. And initially it was intended to be mandatory so that consumers could compare at a glance. Legible so people could see it, a simple system, an interpretive system and, and that's you know, understood to be world's best practice. But it only works if uh, most products have that star system rating. Exactly. It only works if you can see it and use it. I'm just going to go to the tax on sugary drinks because I understand that, that Mexico has implemented that and other countries as well. The policy aim of that is to increase the price of sugary drinks. It's recommended for the best results that prices increase by around 20% or more. A number of countries have already introduced this, around 26, I think. Mexico is one of the ones where we've got some good evidence around its impact. So they've increased the price by around 10%. And what they've seen is that the consumption of sugary drinks has gone down 
7.6% each year, so that's really important. It's really imperative that government develops a strategy to address overweight and obesity when we have such a serious public health issue, and unless we have action now, we're looking at a really serious issue going forward. And that was um, Jane Martin, uh, Executive Manager of the Obesity Policy Coalition, and she spoke to us last year in October about the actions the government needs to address, as as she did in that interview. And uh, we'll post the link also to the Four Corners program, on Monday program, on our website. And in the meantime, you might want to, you know, have a look and check out the sugar seats and uh, who sits in them. I was quite fascinated by that. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. It's 3CR Wednesday breakfast on uh, your Wednesday morning with Judith and Nick. Uh, Paddy away this week and he will be back with us uh, next week. We've been playing a little bit of a uh, bit of uh, microphone tag <laughs> the past few weeks with, um, well, we're, we've all got quite busy lives. I know Paddy's just about to be welcoming a, a new human into the yes, world very soon now, yeah. a couple of months away. and. Exciting. Um, I've got two of them. That yes, you have. And I hope you'll be watching some of the Southern Brown Bandicoot photos with our videos oh, yes. with them. Yeah, I, I will be. In case you would love them. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but right now on the line, uh, we have uh, Vanessa Teague, who is a senior, a senior lecturer in the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, uh, did her PhD in cryptography and game theory at Stanford University, and um, largely focuses on uh, the, the role of electronic voting type machines, but um, also on cryptography and the importance of that, obviously pretty important when you're, uh, when you're doing something like entrusting your democracy to computer systems. Yes, so, yes, Vanessa, welcome, sure. welcome uh, to the program. Vanessa, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you guys? <laughs> Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, now, I, I'm particularly interested in this kind of stuff. I'll just give you a, a quick background. When I was a kid, I was super super nerdy and into, into cryptography and codes, and I read this um, book by, I think it was one of the Simpsons writers, actually, called The, the Code Book. Um, and it was about um, the, the sort of growth of uh, encryption technology dating back to um, early basic sort of character replacement systems. So if somebody knows how to read uh, the characters of your language and you have a whole s- different series of characters and you replace those, then um, they can't read it anymore suddenly, but they could figure it out pretty easily. And then you can make this more and more complex by instead of just uh, character replacing, you can do things like, um, say, uh, only every fifth character is going to be you can sort of add maths to this and start to replace things based on formulas 
what we have now through computing technology is this, is this on um, on computers <laughs> with, the, with, the power, <laughs> with the power of um, of, of doing um, huge computational equations uh, to lock away this information behind millions uh, hundreds of millions of different combinations um, and this this is great for our ability to keep what we're communicating to somebody else private um, but it's sort of analogous to what we do when we're with somebody uh, and, and we go around the corner from anybody else who might be listening, it's not really that much different. Um, we're just trying to obfuscate uh, what's being said to somebody else uh, using our digital technologies. Do you think that's a, a fair, fair way to summarise it, Vanessa? Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's all about... <laughs> In a word. <laughs> the point is you are choosing to communicate to some particular other person and you've chosen to encrypt your message in a way that only the other person you're talking to has the key to decrypt. Exactly. But, of course, um, with our... uh with our policing agencies and, and more and more these sort of uh, secretive agencies that are out there monitoring our electronic communication and, and figuring out how this whole global system works, uh, they're, they're not too fond of uh, all this encryption because then it means that they can't run their keyword scanners through it and, you know, uh, figure out crimes before they happen and do all this um, uh, minority report types, <laughs> not quite minority report type stuff, but it sometimes feels like that. Uh, governments across the world, including including our own, uh, have called for um, the inclusion of what they're calling backdoors into apps that allow you to encrypt your messaging. So whether it's something like Wicca, Signal, WhatsApp, um, a lot of the apps that people use for messaging these days are encrypted. And um, the most recent call, there have been um, some over, over the past few years, but the most recent call that we've seen um, is that uh, Australian law enforcement um, want... Uh, want to be able to have some kind of backdoor um, to access our encrypted technology. Can you talk to us, what exactly would a backdoor be if it's meant to be uh, encrypted? Wouldn't that kind of contradict the point of it? Right, so this whole debate is very interesting because one thing you'll notice is that they've emphatically said they don't want a backdoor. They just want to be able to decrypt end-to-end encrypted messages without having a backdoor. So right. the conversation, any attempt at rational conversation stalls at this point because the question then is, well, how were you intending to decrypt that end-to-end encrypted communication without a backdoor, sir? And um, the answer is that it's really one or the other. And I think to some extent the way that it's being presented, that, oh, we all recognise that backdoors are silly, but we'd like to decrypt those messages anyway. Um, indicate something about the inherently contradictory nature of what they're trying to do. So on the one hand, even the people who are pushing for this kind of secondary access acknowledge that strong encryption is an absolute necessity for security on the web and that if you're talking to your bank or or if you're communicating with a doctor, which increasingly people do over the internet, um, or a psychiatrist, or even just a friend, your the privacy of that communication is critically um, dependent on the quality of the encryption that you're using. Uh, stuff gets broken all the time. Stuff gets broken all the time on the internet. That's not um, you don't need a expert with a PhD in cryptography to say that. Stuff gets broken on the internet all the time. Um, people break into other people's communications. They break into other people's um, devices, 
So, you know, there's really two ways to there's two ways to get at somebody else's data. You can either break into their device and read it off their phone or their computer, or you can intercept it as they communicate it across the internet. Both of these things happen. Um, and a lot of the breaks that happen don't necessarily have anything to do with a deliberate government effort to undermine the quality of the communication. They often just happen because of dumb mistakes. However, what has been shown over many years of government efforts to weaken or restrict encryption standards or undermine um, the complexity and um, quality of encrypted communications is that in the instances we know of, sooner or later, the weaknesses that were introduced have turned out to be exploitable by bad guys trying to break into good people's communications. Well, well so, just, just to, to uh, break it apart for a moment, when, um, I mean, they're saying that it's not a backdoor, but if, if you're intercepting a message that is encrypted, then the only way to decrypt it is to have the key that uh, one side or the other side had, which means that you're uh, getting the key somehow, either reading it off their computer. So this is a password or something like that, or uh, in the more complex forms of encryption, it's a it's a, a string of characters. Um, so so that kind of implies that there is a backdoor into getting <laughs> getting their password, exactly. or the other way exactly. is 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 hard decryption, which it requires enormous amounts of computing power uh, for a lot of the um, encryption techniques that are out there. Um, and then and as you. Say, the only other way is to literally hack somebody's computer so that you can bypass the need to decrypt their message because you can just read it before they encrypt it in the first place. How are either of those two options not a backdoor? Is it just that they, <laughs> right. people don't right. understand what they're talking <laughs> exactly. about? Yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they're assuming that the people listening don't understand what they're hearing about. Right. So this, exactly. I think this idea that, um, oh, we, wanted, we want a forced decryption of encrypted stuff but we don't want a backdoor is inherently contradictory. And um, unfortunately, it tends to lower the quality of the public debate. Instead of having a kind of, instead of having a grounded discussion about exactly what is being proposed, and an intelligent analysis of whether that will make it easier to catch criminals sufficiently much to justify the extent to which it makes it easier to commit crimes, we have instead this quite um, aggressive. Um, kind of statements that they're not asking for a backdoor and anybody who says they are is you know, being silly <laughs> without any kind of clear explanation of what they are actually asking for or how they're expecting to be able to decrypt end-to-end encrypted messages without a backdoor. Part of the trouble is that the term backdoor, of course, is not a, it's not, that's not a well-defined technical term. That's just sort of a generic metaphor for any method of forcing secondary access to mm. something that's meant to be an encrypted communication between two people. Yes. And, and Vanessa, I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, how this kind of translates and how your study of these things translates into your own personal life, your own personal security. I mean, this is coming away for a moment from the, you know, the broader issue, but uh, do you feel very insecure? Do you feel under surveillance? Do you feel because you talk about these things uh, you might attract interest um, from people, uh, government interest even, for being a bit subversive? Um. <laughs> oh. <Careful. laughs> um, let's put, I, I think 
I'm probably not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all hope. We all hope. There's not really anything. There's not really anything under the radar, to be honest. I mean, there's not really. Um, if they're wasting their time decrypting myself, they're really wasting their time. Uh, what I say on the radio is pretty much the whole stuff that's what goes on my Do you encrypt your work, though? I mean, it's, you know, to what extent? Um, I, do use, I do use Signal um, and would encourage anybody who's SMSing to use an end-to-end encrypted app like Signal or Wicker or something. Um, we, we, do, we do take encryption very seriously when we're doing something sensitive. So my research group worked for a long time on re-identifying medical records. And while we were in the process of doing that work, we worked extremely hard to make sure that when we emailed our um, preliminary results back and forth before we had finished off the issue to, make, to disclose it, we uh, made very, very sure to encrypt the partial results as we were sending them around. So we would use GPG to encrypt the paper on our uh, device and then we would send it by email as an encrypted blob across the network. So uh, we use encryption uh, just as a form of responsibility to protect against people, against um, people who might exploit information about other people's health data for nefarious purposes. For me, the government is not particularly the enemy, quite frankly, but there are plenty of... this is, And this is a large part of the point, that most of the nasty people... Most of the people out on the internet trying to break into your communications are organised crime, people trying to steal your credentials to break into your bank account, um, and so forth. So the, the really important priority is to make our stuff more secure. <laughs> and I'm really concerned that this effort to catch, um, you know, terrorists and pedophiles and so on is, on the one hand, it's really important. On the other hand, I think if the effort focuses entirely on that without anticipating the consequences for just ordinary people keeping their ordinary stuff secure from criminals, uh, I think that we're going to end up with a very bad decision. It's the unintended consequences that always uh, tend to be the ones that, that pull these things apart. Um, I, I've just been reading like one of the ways that has been put forward by the Australian Federal Police uh, to do this, which <laughs> sounds like a backdoor to me, but um, what they've said is um, what they could do is target certain devices, um, so my mobile phone that I'm holding right now, for example, or the AFP could say to the creator of uh, an app, for example, to push out an update to my phone that allows them to get my private information before it's encrypted, which is, in my thinking of the definition of the term, that's a that's a backdoor. Backdoor and the into the device. And that's a, the danger of that, as as you say, is that it's not um, it's not that the AFP is going to find out something. You know, I'm not up to anything particularly exciting that the government might might want to find. But there are increasingly bad actors uh, on the internet that are looking to exploit you for identity purposes, for your money, for I mean, just for running a spam bottle, running um, some of these uh, some of these false accounts out there that. Are muddying the political discourse online um, and they want to have a a real looking persona to put it behind so they can they could use your own those are the sorts of things that we ought to be worried about um, and why encryption is important and if that kind of backdoor exists then why would it not be possible for somebody else with the technical capabilities um, to, to also be able to use that that's the problem that as soon as you put it in for an agency like the AFP, it opens it up for all sorts of other bad actors to get in there. 
Is that how you see it? Yeah, yes, yeah, so. exactly. And if you read the... Um, so what that description is exactly what the FBI demanded of Apple in the uh, wake of the uh, San Bernardino terrorist attack. And Apple basically argued exactly as you had. They said, well, if we write software to crack into people's phones and we sign it with our uh, official Apple update signing key, then on the one hand, that greatly increases the risk that that tool comes into the hands of somebody who uses it for bad purposes on somebody else's phone. doesn't immediately mean that it's instantly available to the bad guys, but it greatly increases the prospect that something like that might happen. Second of all, it's not that hard to evade. If you were a, um, if you were about to commit a terrible crime and you didn't want your stuff on your device, then all you have to do is turn off, turn off updates, um, uh, you know, depending on exactly what the mechanism is going to be, there are ways for really bad people to, um, not even bad people. There are ways for suspicious people to simply turn off that feature. So the possibility that a very large number of ordinary users just turn off security updates, distrusting Apple and their capacity to um, keep a keep tabs on that um, mechanism, could actually have really serious negative consequences because. Up, trust in updates is a critical part of keeping everybody else's device secure. Exactly. So they said they could be unintended consequences in two ways, right? One is just the direct technical consequence that that particular thing could subsequently be used by somebody bad for something that was not what the FBI and Apple had intended. And then two was that it might change the behaviour of ordinary people because their distrust of the security of the device and the software company that was making it might cause them to turn away from security updates. So, go on. Oh, sorry, I I was going to say we're just about out of time, Vanessa, but um, this is an issue that we've been following on the the 3CR Wednesday Breakfast Show for um, uh, about, you know, once a month we we sort of touch on this issue. Um, And it all is about uh, the freedom of the internet, which seems to be, at threat from a number of different forces at the moment, from from people that seem to not quite have the imagination to understand what the possibility of the internet is and keep wanting it to close it down for security purposes or corporate purposes or whatever it happens to be. But maybe you could just um, tell us a little bit about why you think uh, if for internet freedom is, uh, is is really important. Ah, well, I do think internet freedom is really, really important. I think this particular issue of backdooring encryption is actually even simpler than that. This is about the security of the internet. It's just plain old making stuff secure. And the idea that you can break little holes in stuff in order to catch the bad guys without, in fact, making it greatly easy for bad guys to break into other people's computers, I think that idea is just wrong. And so this particular issue is a just plain old security <laughs> issue and a matter of thinking clearly about the unintended consequences of making things a little bit less secure, albeit with the best of intentions. So in this particular issue, I don't even think it is a freedom versus security issue. I think it's just a matter of thinking intelligently about what actually makes stuff secure and what makes stuff less secure. Um, Having said that, I'm very much in favour of freedom on the internet in general um, in all kinds of other domains for the same reason that I'm very much in favour of freedom in general for all kinds of other reasons and I would very actively oppose any other measures that inhibit people's ability to communicate freely and privately on the internet. 
Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Good to talk to you. That is Dr. Vanessa Teague, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, who holds her PhD in cryptography and game theory at Stanford University. They're talking about some, oh, look, it's been ongoing proposals. It sort of crops up every few months that a government wants to have, or one of the agencies, police department or ASIO or something like that, wants to have access to encrypted communications, of which... Almost, um, almost everybody is doing it these days. If you, if you are somebody that is interested in encrypting your uh, communication, but you don't uh, have those skills yet, there are workshops being run all the time. Uh, a lot of them are uh, free workshops as well, or a very low uh, amount of pay that you you have to pay to to do these things. Um, there are groups. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I'll find some, and we'll come back to that. Um, find some groups so that you can find out a little bit more about how to encrypt things. Um, but it is important i think it's important to to uh to learn about um just so that uh you know the basic technologies to protect yourself and i mean i sort of don't even think of it as a protecting thing i just think of it as a part of course you you do these things um just because that's what you that's how you how you go about doing these things and i don't think that it it should matter that it's a uh, that that it's encrypted because I'll, I'll encrypt yeah. the most mundane of messages <laughs> to my partner and that just happens as a part of course it's automatic through the through the processes of yeah. my app so it was a fascinating interview with Vanessa and um yeah I look forward to you know following that conversation in in future shows 3CR Wednesday breakfast it's just past 8 o'clock we're going to be ta- uh, catching up with uh, Dr Tim Jones cultural historian from Latrobe uh, shortly what the hell is a completo anyway it's a chilean hot dog what happens when lots of people get together and eat completos? It becomes a completada bailable. If you really want to experience a completada bailable and support our 3CR community, come to our fundraiser Saturday, May the 19th from 7pm at the Moreland City Band Room, 16 to 22 Cross Street, East Brunswick. Highly danceable tunes by DJ Randy Castilla and DJ Twins. Live music by the Amazonics. Limpiese la boquita que le quedó paltita. Five minutes past eight on 3CR Breakfast with uh, Nick and Judith in the studio. And we're just joined in the studio by Dr. Tim Jones from Latrobe. And uh, Tim, welcome. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Good morning. And uh, what's, um, yeah, what's been on your mind? Well. <laughs> <laughs> on your, <laughs> yes, well, indeed. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm starting to use my monthly segment as my monthly rant, but uh, That's yeah. okay. it seems to work. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew ranting like was ranting. so therapeutic? <laughs> ranting is a, 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 well, not a forgotten skill, but too many people don't hone their, their ranting skills. But Tim, rant. I want you to hone that ranting right, skill. Yeah, and right it's right an, an informed rant. It's, I mean, yes, yeah. I think the best are. The best. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was thinking about to talk about what, you know, what in politics can I bring some historical perspective to at the moment? Uh, it's all a bit boring at the moment. Um, the budget isn't out. Trump's yeah. posturing. Nothing's really happening. And Judith said, well, why don't you talk about Anzac Day? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, oh, Anzac Day. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> history, you know. <laughs> I just want to, yes, and of course, uh, you know, I discovered last week when we played uh, Dolce et, not A in the French, mm. <laughs> Dolce et Decor Mist, um, that um, the author of that poem was Gay and Wilfred Owen, and we all memorized, I mean, some of us memorized, but certainly we read it uh, in primary school often and high school, so we were all very familiar with it, and I never knew, I had no idea, and that made it, for some strange reason, 
which we understand, well, we don't understand, but we know, controversial, and so we never heard much about his background. Mm. Well, so it got me thinking about myth. Ah. Uh, so I often question whether I'm a good historian or not, because I'm often not very interested in the truth of things. <laughs> the historicity of things, but I'm much more interested in what they mean to a particular culture at particular times. Um, I know, that sounds like a good historian to me. Enough flattery. But, um, uh, so Anzac Day uh, serves this massive mythological function. Obviously, it happened, that, you know, uh, World War I, everyone knows the story here, um, but what it means has changed radically over time. Um, the early commemorations of Anzac Day. A friend of mine is transcribing his great-great-grandfather's diaries at the moment, and he was at Anzac Cove. Um, you know, not many people are related to someone who was there, given no, it's it's sort of inc- And to have the diaries is a yeah. treasure. Um, but his great-great-grandfather thought it was very peculiar that there was an Anzac Day and that people who weren't there were commemorating it. He thought the whole thing was... Um, I'm not using expletives on it. We're not doing expletives on air today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he thought he thought it was rubbish um, that uh, that people who weren't there were commemorating it. Um, but now it's this nobody who was there is commemorating it. But but it's a massive cultural thing in Australia. And what does it mean? Um, you know, it's the birth. It's we're told that it means the birth of the nation. This foundational story of us separating ourselves from Britain and all the rest of it. Um, actually, none of that's true. No, that's um, what I was thinking, as you said it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a myth in that it gives us meaning and gives us identity. It has a sort of explanatory function. Um, and the truth of that is kind of irrelevant to anybody who's going to a dawn service or who's protesting a dawn service, if you like. Um, so it got me thinking about myths, and Anzac Day is a big one in our culture. Uh, it's very militaristic. Some people like it. Uh, some people don't. Um, but I got, it got me thinking about other myths. What should we celebrate? I've got a colleague, uh, Claire Wright at La Trobe, who's trying to construct an alternative mythology for Australia. Her first uh, book in this alternative mythology series, Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, was very popular. Got a lot of press. She's just finished one on women's suffrage. Oh, yes, so interesting. Um, and yeah. she's, it's going to be a trilogy. The third one is going to be uh, about the Bach petition. So she's constructing an alternative um, narrative about three world-leading moments of democracy in Australia and, and she's proposing that as an alternative mythology that we could build sort of national pride around rather than, you know, losing a battle well, on I, a uh, beach in uh, the I've, Middle East. I've always felt pride about women getting the vote in Australia, you know, just after New Zealand, as, you know, before Britain, before North America. I mean, I think that's that's been a source of pride. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, the first place to get universal manhood suffrage through the Eureka Stockade in 1855. That's not that date's wrong. Um, anyway. So I'm not interested in the truth. I'm just interested <laughs> in the meaning. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out. We'll find out Eureka Star. Anyway, yeah. the, around then. So uh, what other kind of mythologies could we build? And, um, uh, yeah, for what purpose? Yesterday was May Day. Yes. Um, May Day. Is, and this is, the story of May Day is an interesting parallel to this. May Day was traditionally a spring festival in Europe um, in the late 19th century, um, the international it became International Workers' Day for you know labour movements and socialists. 
Uh, now, I didn't know, I, I'd forgotten, even though I'm a European cultural historian, I'd forgotten about the cultural festival because for me, the protesting on May Day has become a thing. Like, it's, it's recent political history has superseded its longer mythology. Um, but, uh, May the 1st is also the, uh, St. Joseph's Day, St. Joseph, the patron saint of workers. Interesting. Uh, for, oh. you know, devout Catholics. But do, do you know, uh, the, I'm, your confused looks mean that you don't, well, you won't know the story. Yes, you're right. Uh, so, St. Joseph's Day was an attempt to, uh, create an alternative mythology. So, it was in the late 19th century, after the Haymarket Affair in Chicago, the International Workers' Day was established by socialist organisations, not in Australia as a public holiday because we have Labor Day, uh, a Labor protest that actually worked. Um, ooh, national pride. Uh, <laughs> Nick's trying to get two holidays. <laughs> More the merrier. He, he, he was working very hard yesterday. Oh. <laughs> Did comment on that earlier. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, as International Workers' Day gained popularity as a public holiday in lots of places, lots of political demonstrations, in 1955, beginning of the Cold War, the Pope moved St. Joseph's Day. St. Joseph's Day used to be a different day. But he said, no, on May the 1st, we will remember and commemorate St. Joseph, to the patron saint of workers, um, <laughs> to try they, they and do this a lot, don't they? create an alternative mythology, an alternative justification for ce- celebrating May Day, but within the framework that is not, as, is not revolutionary, the framework of you know, uh, devotion to a saint, a saint of workers, you know, we're grateful to, we pray for, but I pray see. to, we're grateful, yeah. Well, and I guess mm-hmm. it's moving away from a pagan festival, mm-hmm. possibly. Yep. Which the Pope might then Pope. I have, I have a I have a distinct feeling there's a pattern of uh, Catholics in particular doing this uh, sort of um, what is it subjugating the uh, holidays of uh, the workers. populations. <laughs> well, not just workers, just the populations they're they're trying to subvert into the direction of Catholicism rather than whatever that they were believing before that. Well, yeah, it's, power it's game. true, Nick. But I would uh, caution you uh, to remember the number of religious holidays that we get. So if if this is a just a purely holiday campaign <laughs> Christian Christian mythology has given us a lot of days off work it's true yeah and uh, just just back on on mythology and on its importance what why is it something that is such a I mean I mean you've sort of alluded to you know the story not being quite what history is but it's almost the more important thing for people's just everyday lives because it, it colors our world the the emotional world that we sort of uh walk around with uh, around us and 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 don't always realize because we think we're very logical and rational be- mm. beings but we're guided by the emotions mm. and and the mythology colors these things so why why is it um such an uh, an important thing what does it do to us? What, how does why it do change the way? Yeah. Mean, why do we need it? Is it yeah. Of, um, or what does it do? What does yeah, it do? What it? It? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a deep question for a historian. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a uh, anthropologist or psychoanalyst, but um, obviously, uh, we humans. One of the distinctive things about humans is the way that we make meaning, um, and uh, understand that we you know we use things to understand or misunderstand the world to make ourselves belong and feel safe and create community and connection and solidarity etc. So what does something like the, the the myth of the Anzacs do? What do you think it actually creates in us? What's its goal? Pride. Mm. It's, it's, like it's, it's such a sort of implausible national day. 
Um, and I remember being taught, taught this in school. Judith, I doubt you were taught about Anzac Day in school. No, um, I'm growing up in Canada. Uh, <laughs> but, but most <laughs> listeners would have gone to a primary school in Australia uh, and remember stories of like, oh, isn't it funny? Our National Day is the day we lost a battle. It's not National Day. That's the, yes, that's but, Invasion yeah. Day. Um, we've got great national days in this country. <laughs> but yeah, Anzac Day is almost a national day and it in, embodies all of these uh, Australian values that um, Howard would have emphasised about mateship, ingenuity, like all the stories in primary school that we got about tricking the Turks that we were still in the trenches by having you know, guns, jerry-rigging guns to keep firing even though there was no one in the trenches. Simpson and his donkey. Human, like, there's a lot of virtues there. Ingenuity, uh, humanitarianism, lots of things that we might want to celebrate. Mateship, whatever that is. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot. It's, 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 it's a very masculine to kind of festival. House, lots mm. of, yeah, um, mm. Yes, it's very masculine. But to house a lot of uh, values, it communicates community values and reinforces them. Mm. Um, yeah, I suppose um, the question on a lot of people's lips would be, what community? And are those, is that my community? Are those my values? Because um, I, I think a lot of us feel differently about that. And it's funny because when I grew up, I, I grew up with these stories, but I also grew up with um, my best friend's dad being uh, a uh, Turkish expat, and we always <laughs> used to have lunch with them on uh, Anzac Day. So uh, I don't know what that yeah. meant. Kebabs for everyone. Yeah. But yeah, we, we all, uh, all enjoyed that. But yeah, uh, it... it um, it made me want just like challenge people to think about if you don't like the current myths that we have grounded in history, dig around like my colleague Claire and find an alternative one. You know, the Pope tried to make and for Catholics made an alternative workers' day, you know, St. Joseph's Day. <laughs> Anzac Day was invented in the first place as a myth. You know, let's think about new ones. And And there are many. As, mm. as, uh, so that sounds like a really exciting project that Claire's involved in, mm. and uh, and yeah, to give more attention to more diversity within our mythologies, which are which is already there actually. Yep. It's just a matter of you know bringing. I'm it not out. here for myth busting. I'm here to make more myths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Myth seeding. Uh, Dr. Tim Jones, thank you very much for joining us for our uh, monthly talk on uh, on on some of the cultural history. Uh, out there in our, our culture. This is, <laughs> this, this is 3CR Wednesday breakfast. Uh, it's about 15 minutes past eight. Oh, what? It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky, plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy, and all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. 
Seven min- uh, 17 minutes past eight on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with uh, Nick and Judith in the studio. Patty, uh, hopefully back next week. Uh, and uh, Judith? Yes, and we're going to now speak to Dr. Dennis Muller, who's a senior research fellow in the Centre for Advancing Journalism, and he's also been an active journalist for many years as well. Uh, and uh, he's with the University of Melbourne and a leading expert on media ethics. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Are you there, Dennis? I am here. Great, thank you, and thanks for joining us. And uh, you've just published a paper on the debate about Australian content on TV and suggesting that there's more ways to think about it now, particularly in the the digital climate. But uh, I'm wondering, what prompted you to write this paper? Um, Well, there was an article in The Guardian um, a couple of weeks ago uh, which focused on the fact that the ABC's output of local content had fallen in some ways quite dramatically um, over the past couple of years. And, um, and that was an important story to publish. But when I went and looked at, um, and it was based, I should say, on um, the submissions that had been put into a Senate inquiry, which is currently being conducted um, by the Senate Environment and Communications References Committee, looking into the kind and quantity of Australian content that's available not just on broadcast, but on radio and on streaming services as well. So when I read this piece in The Guardian, I thought, well, I'd be a bit surprised if, if, if it wasn't a broader question than just uh, what the ABC is or is not doing. And so I had a trawl through the submissions to the inquiry, which came from not just the um, Australian broadcasters, but from big organizations like Netflix and Stan and then the, uh, the film industry, uh, the uh, Screen Producers Association, uh, Screen Australia, which is the federal government's um, uh, film Yes, uh, I, I, had a, I had a look at yeah. some of the submissions, yeah. actually. Uh, and, uh, yeah. I, I mean, and, and and what I saw was a much broader picture. Mm-hmm. So that that was what the uh, that was the the prompt, Judith. Yes. Okay. And the and the, the much broader picture was that it's certainly very important uh, what the ABC does because we have always thought about the ABC as having the, I suppose, and lots of ways the the main responsibility for telling our national story, don't we? Uh, But in fact, the commercial television channels do a lot of that too. And now, increasingly, uh, the the national story is being told by our broadcasting um, and filmmaking industries in collaboration with these big global players like Netflix and Stan. Yes, I found and this very interesting in, in your paper, yes. Yeah, and the, and the really fascinating thing, I think, was the uh, amount of money that these uh, big uh, global organisations are pumping into the Australian uh, film and television-making industry. Um, there was some data there from Screen Australia which showed that in 2016-17, the total Australian expenditure on local drama production was 1.28 billion, which was uh, an increase of more than 50% uh, on the previous year, and half of it, nearly 610 million, 
came from these foreign sources. So that is a really dramatic change in the way our local uh, content is being funded. It is, and again, you know, I was really amazed to see that. I'm just just going back to the inquiry. Has this been set up? Is this another kind of stick to beat the ABC with, do you think, or is there some broader reason they've set it up? No, I, I think this is a genuine inquiry. Um, there have been, there, well, we've got another inquiry on foot again about the ABC and its competitive neutrality, yes. which I think is in a different category. But yes. uh, but this, I think, is a, is a genuine inquiry um, into uh, basically um, how we how we tell our, lo- our our national story to ourselves and how we project uh, ourselves overseas. And that's always been well, it's a it's a a major question for all societies, isn't it? I mean, yes, it is. we all yes. instinctively grasp the importance of that. No, no, I, I think this is a this is a genuine uh, inquiry to see how this uh, telling of the national story is going to fare uh, in the midst of this tremendous digital disruption that uh, the media are going through. Yes, and and you make the point that the way we actually look at and measure <clears throat> local content is problematic at the moment within this age of digital technology. Yes, because the the viewer habits are changing dramatically, uh, particularly among the young. Um, the people, there's some data in there from the Australian Communications and Media Authority uh, on audience viewing habits, and they show that the, the trend away from broadcast and towards streaming services is really accelerating, and in particular among people aged between 18 and 34. And you can see, if you look at the data, this um, this huge difference in viewing habits between people of that age and people in the 65-plus category. The younger people watch far less stuff uh, in, in total, uh, but what they do watch is... Uh, Nearly all online, whereas what the um, uh, what the over 65s watch is nearly always on live free to air television. I feel like so can, there are these tremendous shifts going on. I feel like you can just about tell that just sort of almost intuitively by um, picking up on the sort of um, uh, talking points uh, that the different demographics have. Like I, I speak to um, uh, my uh, well friends or uh, uh, that, that are in older demographics or family members that are in older demographics, and the news that they are, are picking up on is just not at all what I'm what I'm thinking about because I'm seeing it through online sources and then watching channel. 7 News at 6 p.m., which is, you know, my generation just isn't doing that anymore. Good no, ideas. well, that's right. And, 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 and so the cultural references, the metaphors, the phrases they use, the language they use, uh, all of these, all these are differences. Um, you know, phrases go viral um, online or are part of the script of one of these streamed dramas, and it's up to, it's different. It's very contemporary, um, and so it affects the the use of language. I find it very entertaining. I, I think that the the language use by the young um, is is exceptionally clever and witty, and just different from the language that I've grown up with. And so, you know, it does seep into uh, our, our culture in a very deep way. I think.
Yes, for sure. And uh, so if we are to understand, you know, what impact our local, well, how much local content is really out there as opposed to just looking at uh, the broadcast figures, how might we do that? Do you have some ideas about that? Well, I think that we're going to be relying on how the government um, calculates this. We we can't do it for ourselves, but... um, but the Australian Communications and Media Authority can do it, and one of the one of the things they have to think about is how they count this stuff. Because at the moment, as matters stand, material that is streamed doesn't count as broadcast. I see. Back in back in the year two thousand, the the then Minister for Communications um, made a decree basically that said uh, streaming services are not part of broadcast now whoever the minister was at the time, couldn't have been expected to see this far forward. But that distinction now seems to me to be very artificial. Um, Why shouldn't local content which is being streamed um, count as part of the telling of of the national story as part of the broadcast system? Because the very highly regulated broadcast system requires the commercial television channels to meet certain quotas of local content. Now, why shouldn't their streamed content count as part of its quota? So uh, I I think we have to, um, or the government agencies need to look at how they count this stuff and then inform us on really how we're going because at the moment it seems to me the counting system is very out of date. Yes, and do you think that that's something that might come out of this inquiry, that a recommendation around that? I, I would think it probably would, yes. I mean, the ACMA is a very competent um, organisation at this kind of thing, um, and, and I would think they'd be well and truly onto it and would be arguing for a much more realistic way of measuring than is currently allowed to them under the Broadcasting Services Act. So, yes, I'm sure there will be recommendations for change and that will give us as a as a community a much better idea of really how we're going with this yes and uh, i noticed that the report was due out on may the 9th but the committee's been given an extension to august 15th so it's something to keep an eye on dennis muller thank you so much uh, for coming on wednesday breakfast again and i really i should have welcomed you back because uh, we've really enjoyed our conversations with you over the past year at least if not before that's very kind judith (laughs) thank you very much indeed it's lovely to be with you thank you okay that's uh, Dr. Dennis Muller from Melbourne University on the Senate Environment and Communications Reference Committee inquiry into the kind and quality of Australian content on broadcast radio and streaming services. And, geez, I have a lot more to say on that issue, but we are just about out of time. And before we finish up today, I uh, just wanted to let you know with the smoke over the past few days that it might continue for a few more days. It is due to uh, some of the uh, uh, controlled burns that are going on uh, across Victoria at the moment, which is blowing into Melbourne. Uh, they have uh, changed some of their plans now, so that's the uh, CFA and the Forest Fire Management uh, Victoria Service uh, ha- are changing their plans now because uh, Melbourne has been inundated with a, a sort of a thick smog uh, lately. But if you are having any uh, problems to smoke exposure, uh, please do get in contact with uh, the Victorian Department of 
Health and Human Services, or Nurses on Call, call I should say. Uh, that phone number is 1300 60 60 24. That's 1300 60 60 24. Because I know in some areas, uh, like Moorlbark in the sort of uh, uh, outer east, uh, they have the, the air quality has just been really poor, which can especially affect people that have asthma or other um, yes. breathing issues. Uh, thank you to our guests from this morning. Yes, well, we had Alice Payne on ethical shopping for a winter coat to start the show, and you and Richie from Deakin University on bandicoots in the suburbs. That was a really interesting story, too, both of them. We also heard from uh, Dr. Vanessa Teague from uh, Melbourne School of Engineering, and uh, she's a specialist in cryptography. And Jane Martin from the Obesity Policy Coalition, a follow-up from Monday's Four Corners report. And, of course, thank you to uh, Dr. Tim Jones, our cultural historian, who joins us monthly to talk about uh, cultural issues. And Dennis Muller, who wound up the show. Very interesting. We will be yeah. back from uh, Wednesday next um, next week. Uh, but in the meantime, there is a breakfast show every morning on 3CR, so please tune in. Uh, up next is uh, Stick Together and then City Limits from 9am. This is 3CR. Catch you later. Bye-bye.